I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemican podcast. So today, uh, this one actually came to us from a colleague, Chaz Wald, the great... Just Afghanistan. Chaz hands. Chaz hands. Am I editing all this stuff out? Yeah, you're going to have to. Okay. <laughs> and he heard of this alchemist from the early 20th century. And again, that's kind of usually out of our scope. But um, this guy and his apprentice seem to really, um, even in, in the, the 1920s, to have believed in, uh, or maybe they're really good charlatans or, or knew how to make their money off of kind of entertainment value, but they, they seem to have been really secretive and seem to really believe in the art of alchemy. So we'll kind of look at these guys and investigate their lives and, and kind of figure out why they were so out of, out of place and time. So again, they're in like 1920s, but they really, if you read their works and read about their lives, um, they really held on to the traditions of the alchemical golden age. So it's kind of like a neo-alchemy from the from the classical age. So it's ignoring the whole, like everything that came after the the 17th and 18th century, basically, and they're they're steeped in this weird um, occult system that you know is long gone. So, so so basically a throwback. Yeah, yeah, like it's you know, a retro a retrospective of something that's long yeah, since it's, gone. Yeah, so I don't want to because there's there's other movements out there that are that are like you know like spiritual alchemy that's still alive and well in in many ways, but um, these guys were really after the Philosopher's Stone and, you know, holding on to this 17th century, like, proto-chemistry or, or kind of pseudoscience. So it's just kind of interesting to read about these guys. It's just, I mean, if you read about them out of context, you might think, okay, yeah, they're, you know, from the, from the 1600s, but um, they're not. Well, the first person we're going to look at is Fulcanelli. Uh, he was named after a French alchemist and an esoteric author. The name Fulcanelli seems to be a play on words, as it were, because Vulcan, the ancient Roman god of fire, plus El, E-L, that is, a, a Canaanite named for God, and so, the, and so therefore the sacred fire. He's generally a mystery to our historical knowledge. Uh, his true identity isn't known, but we'll go through some of those theories as we move along in the podcast tonight. Yeah. So, so Travis, what do we know about him that, uh, that uh, goes beyond his, his nationality as a Frenchman and, and the fact that he was highly educated? Yeah. So yeah, what we do know is just from his writings, and and um, you know you, you can you can get some clues. So um, he he wasn't just like highly educated in general, but he he really knew about alchemy and his traditions. So this is why it seems so out of place because um, he wrote as if he was a 17th century alchemist. But in his writings, also some other um, education shows through, namely like that of architecture, art actual science and also languages. So like uh, the, the, the works we have from him is are two books that were published after his disappearance, which he kind of disappeared somewhere around 1926. And he had an apprentice or 
um, his kind of a student, which was Eugene Cancelier, who we'll, who we'll get to because more is known about him. Uh, one one work, or the, maybe the most famous work, was The Mystery of the Cathedrals. Right. Which was his magnum opus. Yeah. You know, theories about Falconelli speculate that he was one or another of a famous French occultist of that time, perhaps a member of the, of the former royal family, the Valois, or uh, another member of the, the Frères d'Eliopolis, which is the Brotherhood of Heliopolis, a society centered around Fuccinelli, which included Eugene Cancelier, Jean-Julien Champagne, oh. and Jules Brochier. Yeah, to me, the, the royal family one sounds kind of far-fetched. I don't, I don't know. But, but yeah, there was, there was this, these, this brotherhood. So, yeah, it could have been one of those guys, basically. So, so the, the, those members of the brotherhood are known, but he's not. So, yeah, it could have just been one of those guys. Now, now why is that? If he was um, so important and he was just you know, a well-connected well, he, guy, why, is, why are we having trouble with trying to pinpoint who he is? Because he did that on purpose. I mean, uh, did, this, is, this is his Typical doing. alchemist, yeah. Gotcha. So, we, I mean, we saw this in the past that um, there might be a publisher, and he's like, oh, I'm, it's kind of like Clark Kent and Superman. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm good friends with this alchemist, and I'm publishing his works, but I don't know his true identity because it was him, because it was the publisher. Now, Travis, would this be because he's trying to protect himself from, yeah. from other people that would go after him because he's dabbling in something he shouldn't be dabbling in? Or Well, it's the 1920s. He's way out of – yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, if he was an educated man, especially a no- nobility, and he had a reputation for, for dabbling in alchemy, I mean – It's considered low class. Think about – well. Low class. Think about think about what would happen if that happened today. Because nineteen twenties is basically yeah no different times. than today. Yeah. So if, so let's say you have a NASA upper an upper upper management guy that or maybe you know maybe I mean we're in Europe could be nobility whatever, and you know that he has an alchemical lab in this basement and he's taking it seriously. Like that's basically the end of his red, other reputation. Red flag. Yeah. He's yeah right. exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, for, for pretty obvious reasons. Um, there's, there's more theories. One was by a student of Cancelier's, so a student's student of Fulcanelli named Patrick Riviere. He believed that Fulcanelli's true identity was Jules Voile, who was a famous French physicist. So, again, so if he's a famous French physicist, you're going to lose your reputation as a physicist if it's known that you're doing this crazy stuff in your sure. basement, right? Okay, I, I can see that. Yeah. So in, uh, in 1996, samples of writing by Jean-Julien Champagne, who, who you just mentioned, uh, who was born in 1877, and Fulcanelli are compared and show considerable similarity, like more than just superficial, you know, so um, just based off of the writing samples, they're saying, okay, it could have been Champagne, and Champagne was a member of this brotherhood. So in any case, there's additionally, um, there was a guy that we'll get to in a second named Lubish, and he did a sketch of Fulcanelli. And there was no, and, and if you compare the sketch of Fulcanelli, this is like a really weird story where they kind of met in the shadows. And then later this Lubish guy like sketched him off of memory. And if you compare that sketch with images of Champagne, they're, they're identical. Like it's the same guy. So Lubish didn't know who, what Champagne looked like. But he did the sketch of this guy, and okay. So, so yeah, there's good chances it was that guy. So we, we go a little bit forward here. So during 1925, Fucanelli relocated to 59 Rue Rochenar, which uh, is allegedly was successful in transmuting the base metals into gold at this residence. During 1960, with the publication of the international bestseller, The Morning of the Magicians, yeah. Paul Wells and Berger popularized the, the mystery of the master alchemist. Yeah, so with that... With that bestseller, like he became kind of known. 
you know, long after its disappearance. So um, there's a, there's another there's another funny or interesting connection here with these guys. Um, now again, the Cancelier was Fulconelli's student. Now there's some people believe that Cancelier was Fulconelli. That's right, one of the theories. Right. But Cancelier himself believed that Fulconelli's master was Basil Valentine, who we've done a show on, right? So Basil right. Valentine lived hundreds of years before this, but you know, with the elixir of life and, and everything, he could have lived long enough to teach. Uh, Fulconelli, according to a little air this mystery guy. there, yeah. Right. Um, so Fulconelli describes in a strange letter that he uh, he kind of wore the letter as a talisman, basically. In this letter, he writes that he actually com- pre- completed the great work um, by someone that's presumably Basil Valentine, and he also mentions his wife. Uh, quote: When my wife told me the good news, and my wife was inexplicable intuition of sensitivities had a really strange dream so in other words when he's referring to something as important as the great work he mentions his wife as someone as important to the magnus opus so there's some connection between his wife and the philosopher's stone or you know uh, whatever he was after so yeah there's 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 strange theories about who his wife was or if his wife had a connection but the trail kind of ends in this so powell's the guy of this 1960s bestseller According to him, Fulconelli survived World War II and then disappeared completely after the liberation of Paris. So every attempt to find him failed, and during August 1945, American G2, which is you know Army Intelligence, asked Bergier to contact a certain Army major who was in charge of the operation of searching and discovering German research reports on atomic energy. The anonymous U.S. Army major wanted to know the whereabouts of Fulconelli. So they actually they heard about this guy. Bergier couldn't, you know, didn't know anything, and the army major seemed satisfied that Fulconelli w- could not be found. No one really heard much about him until 1926, but in 1945, U.S. Army was like, okay, this guy's gone. I mean, it's probably a pseudonym, anyways. So, but yeah, by 45, they're like, okay, this guy's gone. All right. So Walter Lang reports that Fulconelli communicated with Jacques Bergier, uh, who's a uh, chemical engineer and a French resistance member, to warn French atomic physicist André Holbronner of the man's impending use of nuclear weapons. According to Fucanelli, nuclear weapons had been used before and by, and by and against humanity. Professor Holbronner and Chelvian, among others, were assassinated by the Gestapo towards the end of World War II. So maybe there was a little... Uh, idea that these guys might have some secrets. What are, if they're far fetched or whatnot? That these guys needed to be eliminated. Yeah, and it could. Yeah, and it could have been regarding nuclear weapons or some other weapons or who knows what. Right. The meeting between uh, Jacques Berger and Fulconelli occurred during June of 1937 in a laboratory at the gas board in Paris. According to Neil Powell, the following is a translation of the original verbatim transcript of the rendezvous. So Fulconelli told Belger, and this is from Wikipedia, I'm just going to put that out there, quote, you're on the brink of success, and indeed are several others of our scientists today. Please allow me, be very, very careful. I warn you, the liberation of nuclear power is easier than you think, and the radioactivity artificially produced can poison the atmosphere of our planet in a very short period of time, a few years. Moreover, atomic explosives can be produced from a few grains of metal powerful enough to destroy whole cities. I'm telling you this for a fact. The alchemists have known this for a very, very long time. I shall not attempt to prove to you what I am now going to say, but I ask you to repeat it to Mr. Holbrunner. Certain geometrical arrangements of highly purified materials are enough to release atomic forces. 
without having recourse to either electricity or vacuum techniques. It continues. The secret of alchemy is this. There is a way to manipulating matter and energy so as to produce what modern scientists call a field of force. The field acts on the observer and puts him in a privileged position vis-a-vis -vis the universe. From the position, he can access the realities which are ordinarily hidden from us by time and space, matter and energy. This is what we call the great work, unquote. Yeah, so here's where the 20th century creeps into his alchemy. So he's talking about you know, nuclear bombs, but he's still saying, okay, so this will put you in, into hidden knowledge of you know, the universe, matter, energy, and we call this the great work. So... Okay, nuclear fission. Oh, okay, you know, that's sure. a big step in humanity as far as you know technological yeah, I, advancement. I mean, I just, I just think yeah. that's a great story. Yeah. So um, it's, it's just really interesting. So when when Berger asked Fulcanelli about the philosopher's stone, the alchemist answers, and, and this is a quote: "The vital thing is not the transmutation of metals, but that of the experimenter himself. It is an ancient secret that a few people rediscover each century. Unfortunately, only a handful are successful." So. Is this is this a you know is this an influence from the occult revival where he's like saying that that the, the transmutation is within oneself and it's like spiritual alchemy um, you know hard to say exactly but obviously this was in the 20th century so well listen we we've talked about this ad nauseum this is this is a kind of a tip of the hat to the old ways of thinking you know from 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 centuries ago about alchemists isn't it Travis is you know that you know you can have all the pieces together to make something but if you don't believe it or you don't feel the energy to recreate it yourself from you as a as a human uh you're not going to create the gold you're not going to create uh these precious metals yeah ma right? yeah many did believe that yep in any case during december of 1938 the german chemists Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann sent a manuscript to Naturwissenschaften which is a uh, a magazine in, in Germany at the time, reporting that they had detected the element barium after bombarding uranium with neutrons, which was nuclear fission. Okay, sure. so um, he obviously this was theorized before, so it's not like he pulled it out of his hat or was a prophet, but you know he was proven right a year later in Germany. So, well, decades uh, he, before, you know, uh, Marie Curie did the same thing. I mean, well, she's not the same thing, but she... she well, she discovered radioactive ra Radioactivity. So, yeah. so, so that decay knowledge set is already there. So he's not like yeah. he's coming so out they knew of, about in the middle of the, eight, you know, right. the 19th century saying, look what I found. There's, there's some building blocks so, here. Yeah, exactly. So right. if he was educated, you know, he would have... You know, if he was educated and had a really a keen interest in the occult, um, there's no weird things about this story. But So there's, there's, a, there's another weird story, and that is that according to Concilier, again, his, his student... His last encounter with Fulcanelli happened during 1953, okay? So this is years after his supposed disappearance. When he went to Spain and there was taken to a castle way up in the mountains and, you know, to meet his former master. And Concilier had known Fulcanelli as an old man in his 80s, but now the master had suddenly grown younger and had physically changed in appearance. So he was now kind of, uh, let's say, androgynous. Hey, that is weird. And... <laughs> Um, Fulcanelli called the divine androgyne, and the reunion was was really short. And Funk, and then Fulcanelli once again disappeared, and disappeared this time for good. So this is just a story that Concilier kind of reported. So who knows? But there's there's another. So to get into Fulcanelli's theories a little further, there, there's this thing called the phonetic Kabbalah. So 
Fulcanelli, uh, it's basically Fulcanelli's term for the special use of language drawing on phonetic similarities and other sim symbolic techniques for expanding the expressive reach of words. That's kind of a definition from Wikipedia. So it's, it's it, basically, it's not like the Hebrew Kabbalah. It's derived from the Latin Kabbalah. In fact, it's, it's really kind of its own thing. So what he means is that it's, it's more like homophonic and, and symphonic rather than numerical. So it's more based on like phonetic assonance and, and resonance and kind of like the echo of, of the gay science, like Die Fröhliche Wissenschaft by Friedrich Nietzsche, which was published in 1882. So, you know, this is something that was known. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's Kabbalah in the loosest sense, basically. But he had this whole theory around um, the way words sound and, and, you know, if you can get meaning from, from similarities and that kind of thing. So we talked, well, we mentioned the, the mystery of the cathedrals. His other big book was The Dwellings of the Philosophers, which was published in 1929, again, after his 1926 disappearance. And they're both written in this kind of cryptic and erudite manner, it even has like Latin and Greek puns, which is why they think that he was educated in, you know, other languages. And the classic kind of alchemical symbols and symbolism, these double entendres. And, and um, it also included lectures on Argot and Kant. You know, again, this is kind of to only let in the initiated understand some of the, some of the meaning of the book. So if you didn't, you know, if you didn't under, if you didn't know Kant very well, you wouldn't get it, for instance. And then there's a third book called The End of the World's Glory, which was kind of a work in progress um, and never really completed. And the, the notes for the book were left for a time with Cancelier. And Fulcanelli decided that the time for publication was not right, so it was never actually published. Listeners beware, there's a, a book published more recently that has the same name, and it's a counterfeit. So if you, if you see that book, I would, you know, take it with a huge grain of salt that is actually the, the one that Fulcanelli intended. Well, you know, Travis, I, I think you know, there's a lot of mystery uh, about him, and I think that really draws a lot of people in popular culture to draw upon uh, the mystery of Fulcanelli. The, 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 mystery theor the mystery thriller novel, The Alchemist's Secret by uh, Scott uh, Mariani, uh, deals with the subject of the alchemist's disappearance and what may have happened to his manuscript. Fuconelli is also mentioned in Paolo Colo's 1993 bestseller, The Alchemist. The hunt it's a for, good book. Yeah, have you read that book? Yeah. Okay, it's good. Um, the, the Hunt for Fuconelli by, um, by Allied and Nazi intelligence services during World War II is a major theme in Martin Langfield's 2009 novel, The Secret Fire. I want to read that one. Because that's like Nazis and, and allies were looking for him. Like, well, why? You know, you know the Nazis had issues with the occult, so maybe the, and he seems to maybe. kind of and the allies were yeah because he spoke about nuclear bombs or yeah. gave a warning. So maybe they're like, okay, what does he know? You know, that's yeah, interest like really interesting. Here's a new t uh, tidbit of information. Here, there's a song entitled "But Who Was Fucanelli," and that was recorded on the, on the second disc of Frank Zappa's album "Guitar." Yeah. So that's going to be something. Uh -huh. uh, in the DC Comics universe, um, Evan Fucanelli was referred to as the uncle of Zantana, who I believe was a, uh, a female magician with superpowers. Is that, was that kind of her deal? Um, her relation to Zatara is uncertain. You don't know that? Um, I, I think I know of her from the comics as a kid, but uh, she's kind of one of those outer peripheral sort of, sort yeah. of DC comic folks. Um, and there's so many more. So I think there's so much natural history built into the Fucanelli story that I think it's uh, very common for authors and musicians to kind of embrace some of that mystery. One person who actually know a little bit more about his life and might have actually been Fulcanelli was his 
only real pupil. That's Eugene Cancelier. And so he was born in 1899 and he lived until 1982 and lived, lived in, in France and died in France. And um, he, was, he was a writer and alchemist. Um, he, I mean, he, they had kind of a close relationship. Like he wrote all the prefaces for Fulcanelli's books. In 1916, Fulcanelli had accepted Cancelier, at least by then. And at that time, Cancelier was only 16. And then in 1921, he accepted the, the sons of Ferdinand de Lesseps as students. And during 1922, two more students, Jules Boucher and Gaston Savage. We, we mentioned Boucher before. So... But Cancelier was kind of special. He was like, you know, his best student and supposedly performed a successful transmutation of 100 grams of lead into gold in this, you know, we mentioned this before, the laboratory of the, the gas, uh, works, the of gas works of, yeah, yeah. Sarcel. And yeah, he had, so it's interesting to note that they used something called this projection powder, whatever that is. And it was given to him by Fulcanelli in the presence of Julien Champagne and, and Gaston Sauvage, who, who we mentioned. So he studied at the uh, Lycée uh, Thiers and uh, the, the Beaux Arts in Marseille. He reads the great initiates of Charest alchemy and discovers at the age of 13 years reading a copy on, on a Japan paper of, of Hermes Unveil, uh, published for the first time in 1832. Mm-hmm. He became familiar with the occult reading Papas, Stanislas de Wata, Fabre de Ovier, yeah, so I think there's a lot of kind of interesting stories around this guy and, and also his student and, and even the, the meeting in 1956. So, I mean, he would have been like 113 years old when they met. Maybe so a stretch, it, maybe. Yeah, so it's, it's, um, it makes for a really good story. Let me, let me put it that way. It's, it's really interesting to, to find someone that's, you know, around in the 1920s that's really kind of, first of all, he knows about atomic theory or, you know, like nuclear fission. And he still insists that he he's not only that al- that transmutation of, of lead into gold is possible, that but that he's done it and he has witnesses. So it's it is really interesting. And then you you add Nazis looking for him and the Allied forces looking for him, and uh, it's it's definitely something that I that I wanted to look into. And I'll probably pick up a even if it's just a novel about him, you know, about the al- Allies and, no- and Nazis looking for him. Um, it's pretty good stuff. So. Uh, I, I hope you enjoyed this one, even though it's not our, our usual cutoff date from be- at least before the, the 19th century. But strange enough, we have to bring on the show. I, I think there's a lot of great stuff with this that that harkens to the, the age old of, of the mystery of, of alchemy. So I think it does fit pretty well. Yeah, yeah. This is definitely a fun one to, to read about and research. Um, so yeah, thanks, thanks, Chaz, for bringing this one up to us. And if you do hear about any uh, interesting alchemists, I mean, I have we have lists and lists. But still, you know, if someone says this one's really cool, put this one at the top of your list, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll move them up it. in the queue. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, um, and we, we've had a couple of requests like that, and and uh, so we'll we'll be doing some of those. But all right, so I, I hope you like that one, and thank you very much for listening. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.